Well, it's good to be back with you. Um, just a quick story about my daughters. The other day, I was uh, driving along with my girls, and I've been doing a bit of thinking about what it means to be a good shepherd, a good pastor. I guess it's a good thing to think about, being a pastor. You know, what does it mean to be a good pastor? And so I, I said to my girls, I said, so what do you think a good pastor is? Like, if you were to choose a pastor, what characteristics would you look for in that man? And you know what my daughter said, Annabelle, my middle child, immediately she said, Riley. That's what she said. <laughs> she did. Funny thing. True story. And my other daughters agreed. They're like, yeah, Riley. So clearly, brother, they love you. And you know what? They were so disappointed last week because the week before Easter they were here. My family were here, and they really enjoyed the Easter uh, thing and, and rehearsing for the Easter song. And they said, so are we going to Riley's church? Sorry, girls, we're going to our church. Ah, oh, they were so annoyed. They were so angry with us. <laughs> and so clearly, I need to be more like Riley. <laughs> but it is good to be back with you, uh, to bring God's Word to you. So if you've got your Bibles, please go ahead, grab those. And turn to the epic book, Isaiah. And once you've found Isaiah, we're going to turn to the 64th chapter of this wonderful book. This is a chapter all about the theme that Riley just mentioned, revival. And he's right. I have been thinking about revival for some time. For the last six months or so, I've been joining with some other brothers to pray for revival. And I'm super excited. And so really, my aim today is to stir you up. That's what I'm here to do. I mean, you may believe in revival already, and that's great, but you, we need to go beyond that. We need to actually believe for revival and seek it. And so I'm going to get super excited up here, and I'll probably pace around. It is a bit fresh, so I need to keep warm. Um, so we're going to come to this passage, Isaiah 64. This is what we read. Oh, we're off to a good start. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's thinking about Sinai. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you're angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Verse 7. This is a tragic verse. He says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. This is my purpose and aim today, that we would do this, that we would be roused today so that we take hold of God. He continues, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. 
But you, oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. A holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Father, we come before you. And Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you today. Lord, we, we still ourselves before your holiness. And we pray, Lord, that this wouldn't just be a message, a sermon. But Lord, this would be something that starts something in each of our hearts. Lord, that there would be a stirring and a great move of your spirit so that we would dare to believe together for something great and wonderful that will bring glory to your son and transformation to this city and beyond. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder what thoughts and feelings are evoked in you when you hear the word revival. Revival, revival. I wonder what's going on upstairs or in your heart as you hear the term. Maybe for some of you, you're super excited. Maybe you've researched revival. You've been praying for a revival. And so when I use the term, mention the word, you're like, yes, I'm with you, brother. Or maybe some of you are confused. It's like, oh, I'm not too sure what revival actually means. What is it exactly? Still others, you might be a bit guilty this word makes you feel guilty because you do believe in it, but you haven't really pressed into it. You haven't really given it enough airplay in your life or in this church. Still others, you might be completely put off by the term. If you're anything like me, for a number of years, I was put off by the term revival and the whole subject. And the reason is because when I first got saved, the church I was a part of was called Christian Revival Fellowship Church. That sounds like a cult, right? Well, it was. It was. Praise be to God, there was enough gospel in the church to get me saved, and I was powerfully saved. But then I started to read books like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and I started to think, ah, there are some things amiss in this church. And so I left the church, and then the church even became even more wacky and wild. And then they, they gave up believing in the divinity of Jesus. They started to question the authority of Scripture. And today, they all moved to a Cairns as a commune, uh, a cult, full-on cult. And so for years, I would react negatively to this term revival. And so it was only a few years ago that I, that I was brought to, I guess, my knees as I considered this term, and the Holy Spirit began to unpack for me the, the, the truth concerning revival. And so I've been stirred ever since, and so that's why I'm here today, to preach on this amazing, noble theme. Now, as we get going here, what I thought would be helpful would be to actually define revival for you, just to describe it for you somewhat. Uh, before I do, just a quick disclaimer, though. Revival is a bit of a slippery fish, trying to define it. 
It's a bit like David in Saul's armor, you know? He just didn't fit. And, and most definitions concerning revival uh, don't really fit the true nature of the topic. And so we just need to be cautious as we think about revival because I think, especially in the West, if you're anything like me, I like everything in nice, neat boxes with bows on top. I need to define it and pin it down, nail it down. And yet revival is a bit more mysterious than that because we're talking about this supernatural work of our supernatural king. And so with that disclaimer in view, let's try and take a stab at what revival is. Well, let's start this with this way. Revival isn't a number of things. Revival isn't powerful evangelism. It's not powerful evangelism. Evangelism is obviously an expression of the church. It's something we've been asked to do by our King Jesus. Whereas revival is an experience in the church. So evangelism is something we do as obedient Christians, hopefully, Whereas revival is something that God does exclusively by his spirit. Even though powerful evangelism always results from revival, it does, we need to differentiate between the two. We need to have this clear distinction. So even though we believe a powerful evangelism, if there is evangelism going on, evangelistic campaigns, that's not necessarily revival. Secondly, revival is not the restoration of some backslidden Christians. Of course, this is desirable and certainly a byproduct of revival when you get so-called Christians falling head over heels in love with Jesus. This happens, but in a classic historical sense, revival is more than that. Just a, you know, a few, a handful of people, so-called Christians in a meeting, giving their lives to Jesus again, revival was bigger than that. And, and, and we need to be cautious here because I think often we can call something revival when in fact it's not. It might be a move of God's spirit and we need to be thankful, amen, but in a historical biblical sense of the term, revival is something bigger and broader. I remember a number of years ago, maybe you do as well, one of the Hillsong conferences, it was called This Is Revival. Remember that? And the, you don't, know, just Riley. <laughs> this is revival. And the reason why they were saying this is revival is because they had T.D. Jakes as the keynote speaker. I mean, I don't even think he believes in the Trinity. And so when I used to see that this is revival plastered everywhere, I was so skeptical and thought, this won't be a revival. Hey, seriously, this will not amount to revival. But they were saying, it's going to be a revival because we're going to have the great band and we're going to have the great preaching and this is going to happen. But of course, what did happen? Not much. Not much. Hey, I'm allowed to say this. I'm an ACC guy, right? I'm allowed to say this about them. <laughs> Number three, revival is not an unusual sense of God's presence that rests upon a certain church or fellowship. Now, of course, when revival begins, this does happen. You get one, two, three Christians in a local church. They, they, they sense something's around the corner, and they start believing and pressing into God. But, again, when revival happens, it's something bigger and broader than just what takes place in a local gathering. In other words, when revival hits, it, it always will burst the banks of a local church or fellowship. And it will affect not just a church, but churches. 
and not only in one city, but in a region often, and it will be even broader than that in nations, especially when you think of the Welsh revival. Amazing what God did there. And in Korea as well. And so this is why I'm saying it's more than just an unusual sense of God's presence that rests upon a few individuals in a local church. And so revival, of course, includes all these things I've just mentioned, but surpasses them all. So what is it then? Exactly. What exactly is revival? Well, this is why our text, I think, is really important because Isaiah here in verse 1, he summarizes for us what a revival really is. Because in verse 1, he says this, all that you would rend the heavens and, what's the term? Come down. You would come down. And really, in my mind, this is what revival really is. Historically, biblically, it's God coming down in order to manifest his power. It's to flex his almighty authority so that his people are renewed spiritually. That they're, they're, they're given you life again. That's what revive means, right? There, there needs to be some life in the thing before that thing can be revived. Revival, strictly speaking, is a church-based thing. It's, it's not out there, outside. It's, it's what God does in his own house. And it will have social effects, of course. But it's about what happens in the house of God. When he breathes on the dying embers, as it were. You know, Isaiah, he calls on God to manifest his might and power. And this is what he means. Verse 1, verse 2, he says, Oh, that you would shake the mountains. Because mountains are fixed. They're immovable. He's saying, oh, this situation we find ourselves in. You see, he needed revival because of the idolatry and the worldliness. They had a lot of religious motion, but no true, sincere, deep devotion to God. He says, oh, God, you've got to move this fixed thing, this mountain. You've got to shake. You've got to do something. You've got to pour out fire, as it were, upon this dryness. And you've got to cause the water to bubble and boil. And that's what you do, isn't it, with water. When there are impurities in the water, and there's bacteria in the water, you put heat on it. And Isaiah's like, we need your heat. There's so much bacteria in the house of God. So much, so many impurities of sin, idolatry, and we need you to move. And so classically, this is what revival is. It's what Isaiah is praying for him, what we need to pray for. It's God coming down by his spirit to make his church glorious again. I love what one classic old-time preacher said about revival. Christmas Evans who was called the one-eyed John Bunyan of Wales. Of course, he's Welsh by, by that name, Christmas Evans. He's definitely Welsh. But this is what he said about revival. Revival is God bending down to the dying embers of a fire that is just about to go out. You've got this apathetic, worldly, idle church and breathing into it until it bursts again into flame. Who wants to see this? Come on. Who wants to? Thank you. I don't know who you are. I think you're wearing a face mask. I didn't even see your mouth move there. But amen. We, we need to see the, 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 the church burst, come alive. I love Lloyd Jones's statement about revival here. By the way, just a book plug. If you want some material on revival, Lloyd Jones's book, Martin Lloyd Jones's book, just simply called Revival, is epic. 
The sad thing is you can't buy it in this country. That's saying a lot, right? You've got to order it from the US, Crossway Books, Revival, sell something, buy the book. It's an awesome book, and it's been so instrumental, and it's just fueled the, the fire within me. So this is his definition. He says, revival is a return to Pentecost. Or, or you could spin it around and say, it's, it's Pentecost being restored to the church. Because what happened at Pentecost and immediately after, this is what happened. The church became what? You can summarize it in one word, devoted. Acts 2.42, they became devoted to a number of things because they'd just been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, they just loved the story about Jesus. They just were sponges. Oh, just give me more of Jesus, what he's done for me, what he's done for us. They were devoted to the story. They were devoted to prayer, Luke tells us. Like that, no one had to twist anyone's arm. Are you going to the prayer meeting tonight? No, no, I've got soccer. You know, I can't make. No, no, they just wanted to be there talking to Jesus. They loved the presence of Jesus. And then they were devoted to what? What else? Amen. Fellowship. They loved the story of Jesus. They loved praying and being with Jesus. They loved being with each other. The people of Jesus loved being together. Again, no one had to twist their arm. You're going to be a home group. Oh, I already go to church on Sunday. That's enough for me. No, no, they just wanted to be together daily. Why? Because when they came together, there was this profound fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They just sensed together, oh, Jesus is real. He's alive in our midst. Love talking to him, praying to him. And also they broke bread together. Which, of course, means they just love commemorating the cross, celebrating the cross, celebrating the power of Jesus' blood. They just wanted to be together. And so this is what happens. When God comes by his Holy Spirit, we become devoted, and everything is dialed up. You know, before revival, you love Jesus. After revival, you really love Jesus. Before revival, you do community. After revival, you really do community. You getting the point? Do I need to continue on this? <laughs> All right, on this last one. Before revival, you do witnessing, or you try to. And you shake in your boots, probably, as you're trying to evangelize your friends and neighbors and colleagues. After revival, you really do evangelism. Because this is what we read, isn't it, in the book of Acts? Acts chapter 8, after the persecution, the stoning of Stephen, they all went. Not just the apostles, but they, they all went, just telling each other about Jesus. Why? Because of Pentecost. And so this is revival, the best definition. All these various things that I've said, if you're still confused, after the service, talk to Riley, okay? Because my daughter thinks he's a better pastor than I am anyway. So over there. <laughs> revival is a manifestation of his power for the vitality of his church in the world. And boy, don't we need revival. We don't? Maybe? <laughs> You're looking at me strangely. We need revival. We need revival, seriously. So, second question. We looked at the what, now the why. Why should we seek it? Like, honestly, why, why should we look for revival? Now, I've already stated what revival is, so maybe you're just sitting there thinking, that's a dumb question. I mean, who doesn't want a vibrant church? Who doesn't want a church full of life? You know what? 
Sometimes we can desire things for the wrong reasons. I'll just pick on myself for a moment, right? Being a pastor, I've been addicted. Listen, I've been addicted to church growth for too long. I think Riley can understand what I'm saying. Addicted to church. What will make the church grow? Pastors can be insecure beasts. What made the church grow? I'll get glory. Of course, I don't say that. Don't even dare pray that. Pass this in there because of sin. You're all mixed up. And so we need more pure motives when desiring revival. We need Isaiah's motives because he mentions a couple of things here as to why he prayed for this, this great move for God to come down and rend the heavens. And so we can discern at least two main reasons. The first is this. God is glorified amongst his enemies when God moves in power. Verse 2. After saying, oh, come down and shake the mountains and move in fire, he says, to make your name, what? Known to your adversaries, your enemies, and, and the nations might tremble at your presence. You see, what I find fascinating here and even humbling about this prayer of intercession is that he doesn't start with himself. He doesn't start with the church, the people of God. No, 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 no. He will get there. We'll see. He will get there. But his first concern is, God, your glory. God, these idols and these nations, they're robbing you. And you're not being loved, you're not being honored, you're not being worshipped by our people. God, would you cause these enemies to perish? And this is what we need to pray for as well. This is how we're to pray. This is why we're to seek revival. In other words, we're to become more like the Apostle Paul. Remember in Acts chapter 17, in verse 16, Luke is very descriptive. He says that Paul was walking around Athens. And what did he see? He sees all these various gods, these idols. And he sees this one idol with this inscription to the unknown God. And Luke uses this language that his spirit was provoked within him. Now, now, why was his spirit provoked? Let me tell you, it wasn't because he felt sorry for the Athenians. It wasn't so, felt because he felt sorry for these Greek philosophers. Oh, that would have been there. But the reason why he was provoked was because it was like, God, you're being robbed in this place. And they've got this silly inscription to the unknown God. You should be known. I mean, these people are made in your image. You keep them alive for crying out loud. And they don't know you. They don't worship you. And that stabbed his heart. And that caused him to what? Speak out. To go to those people and plead with them and persuade them. And talk to them about Christ. Because he wanted to see these enemies, these idols, bow the knee to King Jesus. Now, I've got a question for us. When we walk the streets of Parramatta, are our spirits provoked within us? Come on. Are we stirred? You know, we're driving along, we see church buildings now worshipped by Hindus. They're Hindu temples. What does that do within you? Is it, oh, oh, that's unfortunate. And sometimes I think if, if I was the Apostle Paul in his shoes in Athens, I'd be like, ah, this is probably not your best life now. Uh, it's a bit disappointing. Uh, it's lunchtime. I think I'll go to that. Are we going to be stirred when we see the idleness in the church? When we see the consumerism out there, all the gods of greed and sex and the chronic unbelief in our culture. 
When we stirred within and said, oh God, I want to see these enemies of yours bow the knee and come tumbling down. Again, is your spirit provoked within you as you consider and think about the enemies of God? If not, why not? Why not? Aren't we aware of the true spiritual condition? The true state of the church? But can I just be candid? Not my notes here. Riley's starting to sweat now because not my notes. The majority, and I said this to Riley in a cafe, so he knows what I'm going to say. The majority of people in this city, they don't give a rip about this church. They don't even know you're here. They don't even know that Paramount Christian Church is, is there. We've been there for 40 plus years. They don't give a rip. They don't care about the majority of churches. And that will be the same. That will remain the same until God moves by his spirit. You know, Nineveh, God moved by his spirit. Parramatta, it will become, I think, a Christian city, a place where God is known and loved and worshipped when and only when he moves by his spirit. So we've got to be stirred, brothers and sisters. We're stirred. We need to move out of this passivity or just religiosity or whatever it is where we can do our thing and this thing is good. Love this thing. But it needs to move beyond it. We're just desperate together as brothers and sisters crying out to God for a move of God so his church comes alive because a living, vibrant church will always affect change in a culture. Always. I'll move on before you start throwing stones at me. (laughs) The first reason why we're to seek revival is because we want to see these enemies of God, the things that get in the way, just bow the knee to Jesus. Secondly, I've already alluded to this, that God's house is made glorious again. Isaiah, he puts it this way in verse 9. When, in fact, at the, uh, yeah, in verse 9, he says, But be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we're all your people. We're your people. We should be worshippers of you, but look at us. We're in the right mess. We're in a state. Your house is a wilderness. Jerusalem's desolate. We need you to move. I caught up with a pastor friend. I won't mention who. The other week, and this pastor said, just believing that Parramatta will become a Christian city. Can we dare to believe for that? And I said, amen, yeah. Yes, we can. But again, it's only going to happen when God moves to cause his bride, the bride of Christ, to be the pure, spotless bride that she ought to be. And so this is why we're to seek revival. Because we want to see the bride of Christ dazzlingly beautiful as she is. She ought to be. She is in the eyes of Christ. But the way we live, sometimes we can displease him. We can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit through our unbelief and through our consumerism and distraction. I think someone mentioned that distraction. Now we're not really hungering after him. This is why we want revival. Amen? Because we want to see the bride of Christ be the bride that she was made to be the bride that Christ purchased and the, pri- the bride that he will come back for, this radiant church, this pure, spotless bride. So this is why we're to seek revival because of these two 
reasons. But lastly, how are we to respond to these things? We've been thinking about revival. I'm not sure I've been doing a good job up here. I've just been going through some things here. But we've been thinking about what it is, what it isn't, and why are we to seek here. But, but the last thing I want us to consider here is how are we to respond to these things? I mean, obviously we're to pray. Yeah, yeah, but that's not really what I'm talking about mainly. I'm talking about how are we supposed to pray? Like, like what constitutes revival prayer? Like what, what characteristics are we to look for in our, in our prayer? Well, I think as we glean from this text here, Isaiah 64, I, I see five main characteristics and qualities. And they all begin with the letter H, okay, because I just love alliteration. So this might be a bit cheesy, but I trust it will be helpful. So here's the first thing. This is how we're to pray. Our prayer is to be humble. Humble, humble prayer. Isaiah had humility in spades. Seriously, in verse 6, he says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And he goes on. There's no self-justification here. No excuses offered to God. He's like, we are guilty. We deserve death. You see, I really believe that Isaiah never recovered after his encounter with God. Isaiah 6. I mean, I think before his encounter, I think he considered himself to be a holy prophet. But then in the presence of God, is like, holy, 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 the train of your robe fills the temple and everything was shaken. And so was he. And he went to ground. He said, I deserve to die because of my sin. But then he experienced the grace of God, picked him up, cleaned him up forgave him, said, your sin has been atoned for, then he's commissioned, and so he did life out of this humility. So when he prayed, his prayers were full of humility. God will always notice the prayers of his people when they are humble prayers, because what's the promise? God gives grace to the, and he resists the proud. If we're not praying for revival, it could be because we're proud. We're still trusting in ourselves and our own devices and schemes and plans and strategies. But when we humble ourselves, he says, mm, I'll give grace. And revival is grace on mass. This deluge of grace that flows to us through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So come on, let's pray with great humility. Let's confess our sins and the sins of the church. Let's humble ourselves before God. Secondly, and I've made this term up, right? So this is unique. <laughs> Headlock prayer. Oh, no, this is a stretch, Louis. I know what you're thinking. Headlock prayer. I'm talking about pleading with God. With humility, of course, if you can do that. Where you use arguments with God. And again, Isaiah is our perfect model here. I mean, I mean look at verse 12. He says, will you restrain yourself at these things? What are these things? All these arguments he's just presented before God. He's just stacked them on top of each other. In verse 8, he says, you are our father. In other words, you can't leave us destitute. He says, we are clay, only clay. You're the potter. You've made us. You've formed us. Don't leave us on the shelf, a broken pot with dust. Please come fix us up. In verse 10, he says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Notice, your holy cities. 
Not our holy, your holy city's God. We're your people. So God, do, do something about it, Lord. Lord, humility, do something about it. He's using arguments with God, and we need to use arguments with God as well. Moses used arguments with God. Exodus 33, after the incident with the golden calf, God's like, I'm not going with you. You sinful people, you're idolatrous. I've just rescued you now. Look, I'm not going with you. What, what does Moses say? He argues with God. He says, if you don't go, what will the nation say? Oh, your God's not big enough. He's not strong enough. I don't know. I mean, maybe God was thinking, ah, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> arguing with God. I've been arguing with God. I've been saying things like, praying things like, oh, we're the bride of Christ. Father, would you honor the blood of your son? We're supposed to be this, but look at us, failing, struggling, going about our various services and doing our thing. Oh, yeah, awesome, but we need more. Because we're the bride of Christ. Father, you promised never to leave us nor forsake us. But sometimes your presence is not that tangible with where, Lord God, can you fulfill your promises? Yes, this is using arguments with God. You stack them up. Isaiah, Isaiah stack them up before God. Just come on. You're going to keep yourself back, God. You're going to just keep silent. Amen? Headlock prayer. Humble, yes. Timid, no. Number three, hopeful prayer. This prayer of Isaiah's is not bleak. It's not a bleak prayer. I think, I think his prayer is just full of possibilities and anticipation. We, we see this in verse three where he says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's talking about Sinai. It's like you did this in the past, God. You came down, you shook that thing. There was the smoke and there was the fire and everything else to make us realize that you are grand, you are glorious, so that we wouldn't fear going into the promised land and facing all these giants because you're the ultimate giant. And so, God, you did it in the past, so do it again. Could you shake the heavens once more? Could you shake and cause these mountains to quake again? You see, this is why it's really good for us to read the history of revivals in the church. It really is. Because you see again and again and again when, when, when the church is in a trough, a spiritual trough, all of a sudden the gathers, there's a gathering and they pray and then all of a sudden they're launched again. But then after a period of time it starts to decline. It starts to wear out. And the church becomes apathetic again and then they pray. And the church history is like this, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And I think right now we're in a trough. We're in a trough. This church might not be in a trap, but, but generally speaking, we're in a, we're in a trap. And we need revival. And this is why we're to look back and be filled with hope as Isaiah was filled with hope. In, in verse 4, he continues. He says, from of old, no, no, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. Who what? Who acts. Come on. Who acts for those who wait for him. This is prayer, waiting on him. God, do it again. And when he does, wow, he will do extraordinary things, things that we've never seen before, perceived before. Verse 5, there's even more hope. He says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. You meet him. When we get with God's agenda, put away sin, 
put away distraction. Put away religiosity and going through spiritual motions. So God, I really want to follow you wholeheartedly. And you get with a band of believers. You say, come on, let's do life together. Like, really? Let's get in each other's lives and faces. Let's be accountable with one another. Let's confess sin. Let's get real. Let's be family. We're supposed to be family. Let's be family. Let's get in with God's program. That's working righteousness. You do it joyfully. Say, ah, what's the promise? God will meet us. He'll meet us. So hope-filled prayer. Number four, habitual prayer. Habitual prayer. Verse seven, he says, no one... There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. This is what we need to do. We need to take hold of God. This is what it means to wait on God. It doesn't mean just to wait. Like, I know you're suffering. If you're going to bring revival, you're going to do it without me anyway. That's, that's, that's not waiting on God. That's an abuse of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. But he calls us to act, to pray, to believe, to step in. Jonathan Edwards said this, the great Jonathan Edwards who experienced revival in his time, Northampton, U.S. He said this, when God has something very great to accomplish for his church, can you feel it? Can you anticipate it? Do you sense that he's going to do something great in his church? He continues, It is his will that there should precede it the extraordinary prayers of his people. You see, the the two things come together, sovereignty of God, amen. But God has means. And he's he's great means to bring about this renewal, this revival, this great awakening. is the extraordinary prayers of his people. When they humbly, habitually, full of hope, Headlock God and pray. They pray. They pray. And so let's be more like Jacob. Genesis 32. Remember Jacob? He wrestled with God. And he said, I'm not going to let you go, God, until you bless me. We need to be like this. It's, it, it feels kind of blasphemous, doesn't it? It's almost like we're talking about the holy, sovereign, majestic, great I am here. But Jesus gives us the authority to pray this way, guys. He says, you've got to be like that persistent widow, right? You've got to be more like that annoying friend who came to his buddy. He's knocking, he's pounding on the door. Great example, illustration. A number of years ago, my wife and I were in bed. The kids were in bed, small kids, tucked up in bed. It was about four in the morning. And there wasn't a knock at the door. There was, someone was pounding. Sorry, man, I don't want to break your pulpit. But it is a bit high for me, so I could lower it. Get down. So I'm not just a talking head up here. You can see my body. There was a pounding on the door. I'm going to stop doing that now. I'm pounding on the door. And I woke up. There's a star. I go, what the hell? What, what, what have I done? I was thinking it was the police. <laughs> I haven't done anything. I was, like, I was thinking, Natalie, what, what have you done? <laughs> I crept down the stairs. I was scared stiff. I was like, who the heck is it? I opened the door. And it was Sam, the Lebanese neighbor. Oh, Sam, how can I help you? The kids are in bed, you freak. You're like, what are you you're doing? I, didn't, I was thinking that. He said, I need to get to work. And you, you parked your car and you left the car. I said, oh, man, sorry. I, I forgot to put the car in the garage. And he couldn't get out of his garage. And all of a sudden, I was just, ah, 
So this is probably how they do it in the Middle East, right? This is how they knock on doors. It's not this, that's how I knock on it. <laughs> Lord, please, uh, you know, it would be so kind to send revival. Jesus, be like someone who bombards God. Come on. Are you bombarding God with prayer? Bombard, come on, God. The condition is desperate. The state so desperate. We need you to act. I'll rend the heavens and come down. Let's persist. Let's be like Sam, my Lebanese neighbor, and give God no rest until it comes. Because this is what Isaiah said. Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. He says, you who put the Lord in remembrance, like those who remember the Lord and who he is, listen to this, take no rest. Take no rest. And give him no rest. There's the permission. Give him the gift, God, our Father. A glorious God, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem. And for us, of course, until he restores the church and revives us again. Let's give him no rest. Lastly, hungry prayer. Hungry. So it's humble. It's hopeful. It's headlock. It's habitual. It's hungry. How does Isaiah start his prayer of intercession here? He uses this tiny phrase that, uh, that conveys so much depth and passion. He says, oh, he says, oh, oh, that you would come down. This is what Lloyd-Jones says about this verse and this word. He says, there is no word that is more expressive of longing than this word. It expresses the thirst or the hunger of deep desire. It is the cry, listen, of a man at the end of his resources. And I when I read that, I thought, ah, that's probably why we don't pray this way often. Because we haven't come to the end of our resources. We're still trusting in our apologetics. We're still trusting in our evangelistic campaigns. We're still trusting in our methods and strategies and this and that. And some of these things are good. But we only see convert here, convert there, convert over there. We, we don't see conversions en masse. That's what we need to pray, oh God, oh God, do something more grand. I wonder whether your prayers are shot through with this little word, oh, oh God, my family, my neighbor, my community, my church, the city, the nations, oh, oh, oh. Can I be very annoying? If there's no oh, in your prayer closet. It's likely that you're lukewarm or on the verge of it. Because it's impossible to be aware of the situation and know who God is and see how he has robbed glory every day and see how his bride is failing and not pray this way. Oh God. And so if that brings too much conviction, then let me encourage you Start by praying this, oh Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I've been so distracted, caught up with the affairs of this life. I'm worldly, and I want to turn back to you wholeheartedly. Oh Lord, forgive me. You see, I want to leave on this note of grace. I want to leave the way Isaiah concludes his prayer here. 
He says in verse 12, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent? And you know, I've, I've said that this is a hope-filled prayer. And I really believe that Isaiah had a measure of faith to believe that, yes, God, you're not going to hold yourself back. Yes, God, you're going to speak. But us, we're living this side of Calvary, this side of the cross. We should be even more assured and certain and full of hope and faith. Why? Because we know that God did not restrain himself. Forget spiritually coming down, rending the heavens. He literally, bodily, actually came down, the eternal Son of God, the incarnate. And did he stay silent? The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Why? To do more than rend the heavens, but rend his flesh for our freedom. Amen? If this doesn't rouse you, if this doesn't, fulfill Isaiah's plea in verse 7, who's going to call upon the name of the Lord? Who's going to rouse themselves to lay hold of God? Nothing else will. It's the gospel story experienced again. And again, so I love you guys. Love what you do. There's singing. There's songs. I mean, ACC, all right, great rifts and they've got some good songs. Man, it's so gospel and rich, these songs. Keep pounding the gospel into your heart. Keep baptizing your hearts and minds under the sweet waters of what God has done for you in Christ. And may your souls be stirred and roused to believe for great things and start praying to the God who came down. Oh, again, Lord God, in our day, revive us so that your people may praise you. Lord God, we thank you. You are such a wonderful God. You came down. You should have left us, Lord, in our sin, but you didn't. And this is why today, together, as brothers and sisters, we're so full of hope and faith and certainty as we, Lord God, storm your gates, as it were, as we pound on your door. Lord, we're asking together, move in this church, move in the churches in this city, move, Lord God, in our nation and across the world, Lord, for your glory, so that we may see, Lord God, your enemies bow the knee, Lord God, so that we may hear you say to your enemies, be still and know that I am God, so that, Lord, you would receive the honor and the praise and the worship that you deserve. And so that your Lord God church becomes radiant again, full of life, so that we may see, Lord God, social transformation in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed with that prayer said, Amen. Amen.